0: For king and country, during the First World War, that was a phrase that featured on countless postcards and posters, a phrase used to motivate people to join the war effort. And indeed, after the war, those same words adorned war memorials all over Britain. We're going to focus tonight, though, on the king part of that well-known phrase. I'm joined by Heather Jones, author of the new book, For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War. Heather, welcome back to The History Show.
1: Thank you very much, Myles.
0: That was It was a ubiquitous phrase, for king and country. And I suppose it tells us a lot about the role of the crown during wartime and in general terms in, in British society. Were people more likely to fight in 1914 for a king than a country?
1: Well, it's actually the two things going together that mobilised people in 1914-1915. What's very interesting is in the first part of the war, there isn't conscription in the United Kingdom. So, they need to find languages that will encourage men to volunteer to fight. And so, this idea of doing your duty to your monarch is a very potent one that they use on posters, in propaganda, at recruitment rallies. And it's kind of embedded in the idea of being a man and being British in this period. Um, so there's a real romanticisation of monarchy at the outbreak of the war. And monarchy and country are seen as very much inseparable, the same thing. And that, you know, that's, very, that's what got me interested in this, in this topic, this question, what is actually the role of the king part of this dynamic um, that gets you know, men to volunteer? Um, and why is this phrase everywhere in the, first, in the first phases of the war?
0: Let me rephrase the question then. Would you be more likely to fight for a king than for Herbert Asquith or Lloyd George?
1: you would indeed be more likely to fight for the monarch than for Asquith or Lloyd George. Um, and in some cases, actually, in some periods of the war, the prime minister became quite unpopular, whereas the monarch was always popular throughout the war and is very much seen as sort of kind of an embodiment of Britishness. Uh, a very symbolic, a very symbolic individual and someone who's viewed with in this period with a lot of awe and reverence.
0: But in relation to the status of monarchy in general, I mean, in Britain, for example, there must have been a jaundiced attitude towards monarchy in general, given that the, uh, the British were fighting against an emperor and not only an emperor, but an emperor who was related to their own king.
1: Yes. Now, this is very interesting. So what starts to happen during the war is this language of a kind of British monarchical exceptionism, a kind of a special case argument for the British royal family starts to appear, that somehow British monarchy has these ancient traditions going back to the Magna Carta and it's somehow different to those tyrannical continental monarchies that that now in the war appear unacceptable and increasingly there's anti-monarchism spreading on the continent in the last two years of the war. So you get this really strong language that somehow Britain's different to the rest of Europe and its monarchy is somehow different. Um, And the language appears in 1917, 1918, right through to, to 1919 that the British monarchy is monarchy by consent, which is very much a narrative the palace liked to put out as well, that somehow monarchy in Britain is democratic. And that's very much a kind of a wartime endeavour to make them look different to the continental monarchies which are increasingly unpopular in Britain. Obviously the, the German monarchy is hugely unpopular from the outbreak of the war but also the Russian monarchy becomes very unpopular and during the war and the Greek monarchy and they're all related to the British king and queen. Um, so this narrative of British exceptionalism becomes really important.
0: And the, the Belgian monarchy I would have thought because uh, obviously King Leopold had been shopped by Roger Casement not that long before the outbreak of the war yet here are the British going to the aid of the of the country of which Leopold is a monarch,
1: no, he's not the monarch at this point. So, uh, what's Sorry, interesting is it's, it's, it's King Albert, yeah, had yeah. been so monarch. What's interesting in World War One is the the Belgian and the Italian monarchies remain quite popular in Britain, and those are the monarchies that are also seen as really giving up luxury for the war, really you know, suffering with their people is the kind of narrative that appears in the press about those two monarchies. Uh, The Belgian king, he takes a commander in chief role. He actually kind of directs his armies directly in the battlefield. His son is sent to the front as a young teenager. And it's quite, you know, to us, it seems quite quite shocking that such a young boy is sent to experience trench life. And so the Belgian monarchy, who spent the war in the one tiny part of the coast that is not occupied by the Germans, they're seen as quite courageous and brave in Britain during the war. And they have, they end up having quite a close friendship actually with King George V and Queen Mary, who invite them to their silver wedding anniversary during the war. And the Belgian monarchy becomes, it becomes quite heroised in in the British press. And the Italian monarchy as well is seen as, as kind of quite, quite a popular monarchy in Britain, but they're the exceptions. And really the British monarchy is given a whole completely different level of attention in the, British press, it is portrayed as a kind of innately british innately democratic uh, monarchy and obviously this is a complete myth i mean this is this is a dynasty that is that has its origins very recently in germany uh, queen mary is, is mary of tech uh, her parents were german you know so, so this is all this is all created as part of the kind of the language of romanticizing the british monarchy at the outbreak of war where there really is a kind of rush to the colours there is a sense that this is a war britain must fight a difficult war a dangerous war a war that is a war that is righteous is the type of language that's used and the monarchy is, is is kind of used as an emblem of the British values that Britain is fighting for.
0: Now, obviously, central to the book is King George V and, and Queen Mary as well, because George V reigned from 1910 to 1936. How did the outbreak of the war affect him, given all of these relationships that he would have had with other European monarchies in particular. But just in general terms, how does the outbreak of a war of any kind affect the sitting monarch?
1: George V at that the outbreak of the war is in a very difficult position. There's a British convention that constitutionally he can't go and direct his armies, but he is still commander in chief. Technically, he delegates those powers then to the commander in chief in the field. So for most of the war, he wears the uniform. He tries to kind of keep the same status, obviously, of, of the military. He doesn't want to be overshadowed by figures like Haig. Um, he wants to kind of have that status of being, being visible to the troops. So he goes to visit France. He and Queen Mary spend a lot of time visiting hospitals, a lot of time talking to the wounded. They see people dying. They, he, he attends operations. Um, you know, he's in casualty clearing stations at one point during during the spring offensive of March 1918, where he rushes to the front and, uh, you know, witnesses really appalling things, all in an effort to, to continue to be the key symbol, the key leader above all the other leaders in the British war effort. Um, so he's he's very personally affected by this. And, and I think slightly insecure as well at the position that he faces, which, is to try and continue, you know, to keep the monarchy's status intact in the face of a total war situation where, you know, Lloyd George becomes very popular. He's a dangerous potential rival to the monarchy in their eyes. You know, Haig as well. So even though Hague is very subservient to the king, so the king really has to kind of maintain his status. The other reason the war is difficult obviously is, he, ha- he you know, he has to cut contact with a lot of his relatives. Um, when war breaks out, he's extremely angry with the Kaiser. Um, he blames the Kaiser for the war he views the Kaiser as in many ways in religious terms George V is a very religious man he views the Kaiser as kind of doing the devil's work creating this terrible war which is destroying Europe you know, so, so that, that whole side of, of contact um, with kind of the, the Hohenzollern side completely disappears. Um, in contrast, the women of the royal family continue to, to write to some of their German relatives during the war, not to the Kaiser, but Queen Mary writes to an elderly aunt um, who, who's uh, a member of a German dynasty throughout the war. They use intermediaries. Queen Alexandra also continues to write letters. Um, so there's there's an interesting tension there that the British royals face. What do you do with, with some of your relatives being on the other side? So how did
0: George V feel about thousands of men dying in his name, if not necessarily on his behalf? Or did he did he personalise it to that extent?
1: He did personalise it to that extent. And I think George V really did believe, and Queen Mary as well, that these men had laid down their lives for king and country. And therefore the monarchy had a duty to then serve the people to make good on that sacrifice. And that was an immense emotional burden that they then carried For the rest of their lives. Um, And I think if you look at the abdication crisis, for example, Queen Mary is very angry at her eldest son when he becomes king, that when other men had given up their lives for for their country, he couldn't give up a woman. Um, And she makes that exact comparison and and kind of argues the people won't understand, you know, that they've had to make these immense sacrifices in the war and you can't make a lesser sacrifice. And I think they, you know, they exaggerated the extent to which soldiers were fighting for the king by the end of the war. I mean, by the end of the war, um, there's conscription. Many men don't have a choice about being sent to the front. Someone when they see the king coming on his visits to the front, they're just a bit bewildered as to what's he doing there. In some cases, we have examples where the men mutter under their breath and mutter rude words. We have an oral history interview with someone who was, who was present during uh, one of the visits And they were lined up on the road for the king's car to go past and the men are muttering under their breath. Um, They're exhausted. They've just come out of the line from fighting. And, and you know, there's resentment there. So by the end of the war, I think the monarchy themselves are slightly exaggerating to themselves the extent to which men are still fighting for king and country. The slogan is still there, but this is not the same as 1914 and 1915 anymore.
0: Now, 1418 was not a good period for monarchs. And at the end of the war, he's almost the last man standing in terms of the major monarchies. You know, the Hohenzollerns are gone, the Habsburgs are gone, the Romanovs are gone. Is there then much anti-monarchical sentiment in the UK which causes George V to worry about his future and the future of the monarchy in Britain?
1: So what's very interesting when you start looking to see how far does this, does the 1970, 1980 war weariness translate into anti-monarchism in Britain on the home front? And when you start to go looking for that, you don't actually find large scale manifestations of anti-monarchism. So you don't find large amounts of graffiti. You don't find people pulling down royal symbols. You don't find mass demonstrations. And in fact, there's a royal wedding just after the war and it's hugely well attended. And um, so, you know, this kinds of the kind of anti-monarchism that you that one would look for as a historian trials, sedition trials, for example, or people interrupting the national anthem. None of those things are there. So what seems to have happened is that while a certain degree of of potential anti-monarchism or war weariness is developing on the Western Front and in some radical left-wing labour circles in Britain, that doesn't translate into a mass movement of any kind. And that is different to what we see in, say, in Germany, where anti-monarchism is a big part of the end of the war and the revolution, or in, in, in Austria-Hungary, where again, anti-monarchism is a big factor in, in the kind of push for nation-states that comes comes out there. And um, So there's something going on in Britain and I think the fact the monarchy has created this wartime image of hard work, of, you know, giving up alcohol, giving up theatre, giving up, you know, all kinds of entertainment, horse racing. They do none of this during the war. They, they spend a lot of the war eating quite a meagre diet, actually trying very hard to kind of display their, their common suffering and, and kind of sharing in the, people's, in the people's war effort. And some of that, I think, percolates through. And there is a sense that, that the monarchy remains quite stable. Um, and the, some of the existing historiography or historians work on this has slightly exaggerated the rise of republicanism in Britain in 1917 and 1918. Because when you go looking for it, they're just amongst ordinary, ordinary munitions workers. It just isn't there. They flock to see royal visits. They come out and they clap, they applaud. In 1917, there is a strike wave in Glasgow and the north of England, a very serious strike wave against the Lloyd George government. And Lloyd George is unable to go there. He is he's very much persona non grata. But he and the cabinet send the royal couple, they send the king and queen there, because they know that the strikers will talk to them. And the king meets with the militant labour leaders and he meets with the trade union leaders in those areas. And the visit goes very, very well. And in fact, it's a factor in kind of calming the situation. Now, you wouldn't see that in Germany or in Russia, you know, at that point in the war. The anti-monarchism is far, far stronger, far more of a popular movement The German court is still serving caviar and building a a ridiculously luxurious palace on the outskirts of Berlin while the people are starving from the blockade. This is a big contrast to what's going on in terms of the ways that the King George V and Queen Mary are going out and visiting all of these munitions factories day in, day out and the hospitals as well. And I think that does make a difference.
0: Let's finish by talking a little bit about Ireland because there's the train of thought which sees the post-war nationalist conflicts across Europe as a continuation of World War One by other means, and that includes the Anglo-Irish War. So go back to 1914 and, the, and uh, just before the beginnings of the war, when perhaps the British Cabinet's attention should have been focused on what's going on in Europe. Instead, it's focused on what's going on in Ireland. And George V calls the Buckingham Palace conference between Unionist and Nationalist leaders. Was that his own personal initiative or was he nudged by the government to call that conference?
1: It's very interesting, uh, George V's relationship with Ireland, because on a number of occasions during during the war years and just before, he does take personal initiatives. And the Buckingham Palace Conference was an initiative developed by palace advisors, the king and the government together. Asquith was also in favour of it. But the soundings came initially from one of the king's advisors. Um, So that, you know, it it was Fritz Ponsonby, the keeper of the Privy Purse, who was one of the people who came up with this idea. And the idea was that if the king hosted this event, none of the parties in Ireland could say no uh, because he was seen as being above politics. And because at that point, the Irish nationalist movement was a home rule movement. um, So it was looking for devolution within the United Kingdom. Now, by the end of the war, we see other personal initiatives as well from, from the king. But at this point, the situation has radically changed in Ireland and the British monarchy haven't grasped that. So you find statements from some of the king's advisers and some of the prime minister's advisers claiming that Ireland is actually very sentimental about the monarchy and still monarchist. And if the king intervenes, that this will somehow, you know, this will go down very, very well. They've completely missed the, the, the huge turn to republicanism in, in general election of December 1918. They've really not picked up on the, the sea change that has taken place in Irish nationalism. Nevertheless, when one looks at, 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 at things like the king's opening of the Northern Irish Parliament, that does go, still go down quite well with certain circles of moderate moderate Irish nationalists who still see George V as the reforming king, uh, the king who had reached out to Catholicism, who'd removed the anti-Catholic clauses from the coronation oath, who'd visited Maynooth and visited um, Catholic locations in, in Ireland during its 1911 visit. And his speech itself in Belfast is very much personal initiative. It's really interesting, actually, how much he drafted of that speech and how he actually rejects a series of drafts that are put to him that are much more unionist. um, And he keeps sending them back to cabinet, refusing to give the speech. It's it's skating very close to the constitutional line, what he does there, in initially turning down some of the words that Lloyd George initially wanted to put in his mouth.
0: Let's talk also about the treaty negotiations and specifically about the Oath of Allegiance because that was something that divided the parties right up until the end. And there are various attempts at forms of words and so on and and, and, and so forth. I mean, to what extent did, did King George play any part in that because essentially what we're talking here about here is an oath of allegiance to him and his continuance as head of state in Ireland.
1: Yes, for, for George V, what was important in the treaty was this idea that the Free State would still be part of the wider British Empire. Um, So the monarchy at this point is looking to kind of reform the empire and can see the tensions that are developing with control from Westminster and Whitehall and the fact that many of these components of the empire want to cut with with political control from London. And they see it, they want to sustain their own position as as still as as kind of in monarchical symbolic terms. So what they want is to, to try and retain the symbolic monarchy while the political links with London fall away. And so the treaty is a classic example of that. Um, the idea being that if, if George V is still the head of state, it doesn't really matter if Ireland is, is an independent dominion or whether it gets home rule to the monarchy. It's, the monarchy is still, is still present. The people of the, of the country would still be British subjects in international law. Every person in the empire at this point um, is it, it effectively all the populations have the same legal status, the same nationality status as a British subject. Now, we know the empire is riven with racist discrimination at local level and at, at the level of individual governments. But the international legal status of people when they travelled was British subject. And so Irish people following the treaty would legally still be British subjects when the king remained head of state. And that's one of the reasons why the oath of allegiance is so problematic for Irish Republicans. Not only have a Republican TDs already taken an oath of allegiance to the republic, which this oath in, in the door coming in uh, to, to, to King George V would contradict, But also they want Ireland to have its own independent national citizenship. They want Irish passports across the empire. There there are no individual national passports at this point. So so the Oath of Allegiance is, is much more than a symbolic oath by parliamentarians. It actually cuts right to the chase of what all this is actually about, what kind of future state the Irish independent Ireland will be. Now, from the British point of view, one of the things they're also hoping for is that ultimately Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland will reunite as one large dominion still within the monarchical British Empire system. And so so one of the reasons, again, they're quite keen on this Oath of Allegiance is that that will facilitate that larger dominion forming later on, they hope, in the interwar period when, when things have calmed down. And It's a real misjudgment of the Irish mood. It's a real misunderstanding of the sea change to republicanism that's taken place. And I think it's you know it's really it shows the kind of monarchical belief systems of the British delegation who are negotiating the treaty. The words they use around the oath of allegiance, I mean, it's almost like mystical. This idea of Britishness as allegiance to a monarch is really uh, embedded in their thinking. It's it's a kind of almost religious belief system in, in the way they think. They cannot imagine a republic within the empire. And Griffiths actually argue Arthur Griffith argues for that and says, you know, would that not be possible? And, and the British delegation simply cannot, they cannot even imagine it. It's beyond their ability to imagine. Now, obviously after World War II, we know that does happen. But at this point, just after World War One, they cannot conceive of any kind of compromise around the idea of, the, of, of allegiance to the king and being, people being British subjects.
0: Well, the book is called For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War. It's published by Cambridge University Press. The author is Dr. Heather Jones. Heather, many thanks indeed for joining us.
1: Thank you very
0: much, Mal. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Duncan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.
1: Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.